Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has four years of law enforcement analysis experience with connections in Cincinnati, Detroit, and Charlotte. He's one of Charlie Giberti's analysts of tomorrow, here to talk about, among other things, prepping to be an analyst in undergrad. Please welcome TJ Sweet. TJ, how are we doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I am doing well, so I appreciate the name. That's a nice, easy name for me to pronounce. Had some tongue tires recently as guests and butchered them up pretty well. So I appreciate something as easy as TJ Sweet. Yeah, teachers always loved it on the first day of school. Like everybody thought that it was comedy hour and they'd be like, oh, what a sweet last name. Sweet. And I'm like, (laughs) I've heard it. I've heard it since kindergarten. I'm not laughing because I've heard heard that one before. You're going to have to dip into the well a little bit more. Now, did you ever get sweat? No, I never. (laughs) I, I usually never got sweat. It was usually always like people who couldn't see my name. Yeah. We usually ask, like, is it pronounced like sweet, like the candy sweet? And I'm like, yes. Yeah. And then that's usually, that usually led into the jokes. And I'm like, yeah. guys, I've been hearing it since kindergarten, okay? Yeah, <laughs> that's just low-hanging fruit, two on the nose. All right. Well, exciting to talk to you today. For the listeners, just a programming note, we will be taking your calls and don't be that analyst segment later in the hour. So get in your calls. And so TJ, let's get started here. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Yeah, so I kind of discovered it. It was really kind of a roundabout journey through college. So went into UC as a criminal justice student and really didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd known since I was in like middle school that I wanted to work with the police in some capacity, but I also knew that I didn't, I wasn't cut out to be the police, but I wanted to work with the police. And so I went in kind of figuring that having a CJ degree would be broad enough that by the time I graduated, I would figure something out. And what really, where the light bulb kind of started going off for me was I actually had Charlie as a professor my freshman year. And he mentioned, I think towards the end of that class that we, that we had, that he was a crime analyst for, at the time, Cincinnati Police Department. And it just kind of had the light bulbs going off in my head because during that year, I'd been really getting turned on to kind of the way that data could be used to support a police department. And I was kind of like, so there are people that use data in a police department, like working for the police department, that kind of sounds right up my alley. So I, I went through my time at UC, they ended up adding a crime analysis and prevention certificate, which just kind of further solidified for me that doing crime analysis was what I wanted to do. I was really interested in the theory. I was really interested in the tech that we use. And so after I graduated, I did a couple months interning with CPD and then was fortunate enough to land a job in Detroit. So it was really just through kind of getting involved in college, asking questions, talking to professors, talking to Charlie and being like, you know, hey, like, what do I need to know to be a crime analyst? How can I start that journey? that kind of just led led me to crime analysis. It wasn't something that I knew about going into college, but I was really grateful to be surrounded by so many crime prevention professors and crime analysts at UC that could kind of help me along that path and kind of figure those things out. Yeah, so what year did you meet Charlie? Yeah, we met in the spring of 2016, spring semester of 2016. And then we, I interned with him in the summer of 2018, right after I graduated. 
Yeah. But what year were you in school? In 2016, I was a freshman. So you were a freshman. Wow. So I think you might be the first guest that I, I've had to where you recognized it, the field in undergrad, and then worked at it to become an analyst. Because most of my guests say, well, I fell into it, mm -hmm. right? I was doing a different job. I was dispatching and I heard about analysis, or I was an officer that learned about analysis. Because I've not had anybody on the show so far saying, hey, in high school, I, I realized that I wanted to be an analyst. So I went to college to be an analyst and then became an analyst. Nobody has told me that so far. So I think you are the first one to recognize at such an early age that you wanted to be an analyst and then target becoming an analyst. All right. So then when you become the intern at Cincinnati, what kind of tasks are you doing? I was helping create maps for some of the kind of community meetings that we would have. I was also kind of in charge of doing some open source research on problem solving efforts for traffic crash accidents. And I would just kind of help out with some of the, the stars, which I think was, which at the time was what they called their CompStat meeting reports and kind of things like that. So just kind of stepping in as like, basically kind of a part-time analyst. They were a little understaffed at the time. So it was kind of a good opportunity for me to kind of step in and, and really grab, grab the bull by the horns and really start doing crime analysis and learning about what crime analysis is and should be. Yeah. And when I, when I had Charlie on, as I mentioned, he named you as one of his analysts of tomorrow. And one of the descriptions he had of you is how great of a student of the profession you were. He said, I'm paraphrasing here, that it seemed like whatever topic we were talking about, TJ had already read like two or three books on the, on the matter and was very well read on a variety of topics. Yeah, I uh... I, I appreciate that. And I think for me, one of the biggest things, and that, that was a credit to UC, a credit to Charlie, and just kind of a really good example to like younger analysts or students in college, if they're listening, like just take that bull by the horns. Like I was really fortunate that going into college and, and being in college, I was learning about something that I was passionate about. You know, I mm -hmm. read a lot of articles, you know, sometimes it would be the same article looking at it from a different angle, just because I, I was interested in it. And I, and I love then and I love now what we do. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, like those things, that work, that preparation, that knowledge building, it didn't seem like work because I enjoyed it. And, you know, even now it, it's something that I'm, I'm really fortunate that I, I enjoy what I do. You know what I mean? I'm not just collecting a paycheck. Now, do you still feel that you're able to read various articles and books on the profession now that you're in the profession? Not as much. It's definitely a lot tougher than I'd like. I still mm -hmm. find myself doing it if I'm researching like new ways to do something or mm -hmm. just trying to kind of build up my knowledge base. I'll I'll pull up an article if it's something that I feel like, okay, I, I need to learn more about this or I sure. need to be able to understand you know, if I'm asked why I want this tool, why I want that tool, you know, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't just want to, I don't, I don't just want to say, you know, well, because other analysts use it or, or this or that, I want to be able to say, this is what I want to use the tool for. Here's the theory behind it. And here's what I'm trying to do with that as it's informed by the theory behind it. No, for me, it was always about purpose. I definitely learn better when there's a purpose behind it. Mm, and I also, I've, I've said several times on this show, I hate to read. 
So I'm not just going to read a book yeah. just for the sake of reading a book, but it, it definitely helps that just what you were describing right now is, oh, researching a tool or researching a, a way to do things better. I'm always looking for ways to be more efficient. Yeah. So then you're interned at Cincinnati, then the opportunity at Detroit comes comes up. And so just since you've targeted being an analyst your freshman year, and then now you get the opportunity to go into Detroit as an analyst, just take us back to that first week, first month, couple of months of going into Detroit as an analyst. Yeah. So it was definitely, I think the biggest word that I would use was unexpected because in Cincinnati, I learned a lot about crime analysis kind of from the strategic angle. And then when I got hired on in Detroit, I was part of kind of a more tactical unit where we would kind of, you know, focus on different gangs and kind of pursue gang disruption. And my goal was kind of to, as an analyst, inform our weekly or our daily plans. And so it was definitely a little bit different from what I expected. But I remember when I first started, I was really, I was really just excited because, you know, I was doing something that I really wanted to do for a really long time. And I was doing it in a city that I'd kind of grown up around. I grew up about 30 minutes from Detroit in the Metro Detroit area. And so it was kind of cool to come back home and start my career there. Those first few months, it was a lot of learning about, you know, investigations and identifying subjects on Instagram, social media, kind of looking into, you know, series and trends and being able to identify patterns and things like that. And, and to be totally honest with you, I definitely dealt with some imposter syndrome when I first started where I was like, <laughs> I'm a terrible crime analyst. I have no idea what I'm doing. This is going to be a disaster. I'm terrible at this. And it just kind of, I just, it ended up working out. And I had a lot of really good, good people around me, really good people that came in at the time in the department who were encouraging me just to kind of keep pushing at it. And then when I got sent to my precinct, which is kind of what we call like our patrol divisions in DPD, we hadn't had a ceasefire analyst yet. So I was the first ceasefire analyst in that precinct. And so my job was kind of to take some of the intel that our officers had and start building out, you know, gangs and groups from that information. So it was, it was, it was a challenge kind of being that first and kind of having that uncharted territory, so to speak. But I definitely would say that I jumped in head first. Again, I was, I was really interested in what I was doing. I really enjoyed it. So even though it was kind of a lot of, you know, at the time I was like, okay, you're, you're building this out and we hadn't had this before. So make it your own. I enjoyed that challenge and I liked what I was doing. And so it made it easier to go, you know, Hey, I got this guy's social media. Let me go look through the cases. Oh, him and these three guys were together in this, you know, CCW case. Okay. Oh, look, they're on social media together. They're definitely associated to this and kind of building it out and, and learning what it looks like to build out a group. It was definitely a very unexpected experience and not what I expected from like my first crime analyst job, but I'm, I'm really, really grateful for it. And I learned so much from that first year or so. Yeah. I mean, back to the imposter syndrome and it, I think it's what you do with it, right? Mm -hmm. you, you cer certainly we can all have times in our lives when we're maybe not as confident as we should be, or we have more anxiety than what we should have. But if, if it's going to weigh on you to the point it impacts your performance, then that's when it becomes an issue. But if you use it as fuel to work around issues that you're dealing with, it can be beneficial. So it certainly sounds like yours is the latter there where you've understood that, yeah, I, I feel like, an imposter, but at the same time, there's so much to learn 
and you literally just put your head down and figured it out. Yes. And I think, I think what I've even learned progressing further into my career is I think that kind of, man, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing or man, I have so much to learn. I think that's very much of the, the mark of a young analyst, right? Like, you know, and that was hard for me at the time because it was like, I was coming from, you know, college where I think, and I, and I think this is a, a very universal, you know, 22 year old experience is coming out of college, thinking, you know, everything, and then getting into the workforce and realizing, oh, I know nothing. And so I think for me, it was kind of that same thing of like, man, I have no clue what I'm doing. And the more that I've kind of progressed into my career, the more that I've kind of developed this perspective of like, okay, there are a lot of things that I have some good experience in and I know how to do really well. But at the same time, there are a lot of things that I need to grow in and I need to, you know, reevaluate and, and think through, hey, how could I have done that a little bit better? Or how can I make that a little bit easier? And so I think it's kind of learning to act, kind of like what you said, and, and, I, and I really liked how you said it, of fuel, using that kind of that feeling of, man, I don't know a lot to fuel your career and to, and to fuel how you approach your job. But instead of just being like, man, I'm a terrible analyst, using that to say, okay, I don't know a lot about this. Let me do some research. Let me, you know, dive in and learn more about this skill set and kind of just better understand what it is that I'm doing wrong so I can kind of reorient and grow and turn this weakness maybe into a strength or at least into a neutral part of my career. Yeah. And you use the term ceasefire analyst. And just to, for those that may not know, could you describe that? Yeah. So Detroit was doing something at the time, and I, I think they still are, called Operation Ceasefire, where they were essentially doing pursuing targeted disruption on on high risk gangs and groups. And so kind of the, the main focus of our efforts was around working with these gangs and groups and kind of sending the message that firearm violence, violent crime is not gonna be tolerated anymore. And you're either gonna stop doing it and we're gonna help you, you know, find employment, find counseling. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna help you pursue other avenues to, to make money, deal with aggression, things like that. Or we're gonna, we're, we're just gonna, we're gonna come after you and, and you're gonna get time for the things that you do and this just isn't going to be tolerated. So that was kind of one aspect that's added up. That was one aspect of it. And then kind of the other aspect was getting these gang and these group members as we would be working with them to kind of attend these call-ins, right? Where it was basically kind of a concentrated version of that same message where we would have a variety of different speakers from law enforcement, family members of family members who had lost their children to gun violence, pastors, community partners, who would again just send that message of, hey, we can help you get out of this, but either way, this is not a sustainable path for you. And we can either help you find a more sustainable one or you will end up in prison or, you know, if, if you continue on this path, potentially being a victim of gun violence yourself. So it was kind of all geared toward, as kind of the name says, ending gun violence and decreasing rates of gun violence that involve gangs and decreasing the presence of gangs in the city of Detroit. All right, good. So this brings us to your analyst badge story. You're in Detroit. You're in this as a ceasefire analyst here. It's 2019. And you're working a murder of a gang member. Yeah. So it was, I believe, the weekend after July 4th. There was definitely sometime in July. And I had been kind of assisting the FBI with this group. And I got a phone call from one of my friends who was at the time the gang analyst. And he says, do you know so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, why? I'm familiar with him. And he goes, he just got murdered. And so I placed a, a I contacted the FBI analyst. I was like, hey, just an FYI, I know you were looking into this guy, he just got murdered. And he called me back and was like, hey, by any chance, could you help us get the phone? And I was like, okay, I can, I can work on that. So I basically just ended up kind of long story short, communicating with the gang analyst, one of the DPD sergeants to make sure that they were able to get the phone 
for their case. And so I was just kind of helping them out with that. That had kind of existed just from a, a pre-existing relationship where me and this particular FBI analyst were just sharing a lot of, of information and things that we'd see in, in social media and in cases and kind of just learning more about this group and, and some of the crimes that they'd been doing. So with the phone, was the phone on the victim? Yes. Okay. And I mean, that's probably something that they normally would have grabbed anyway, right? Yeah. Okay. So how did the case play out then? Did you eventually find who murdered the, the person? I don't, I don't believe that that case ever ended up getting solved. I know there was some word on who did, but I do know that the gang, the gang themselves ended up getting indicted uh, by the FBI a little bit, a little bit later. A lot of people with their analyst badge stories, they come in and they say, you know, there's the story that's itself that how they worked the particular project or case, but it's also the boost that it gave them is that some people, again, getting into that imposter syndrome and even some self-doubt there, you know, a lot of guests on the show have used the first time that, you know, this case was the one that let me know, like, I could do this, I could make it in this profession. Now, by this time, had you already felt that way? Or did that did this case have a similar impact on you? I think it had a similar impact. I had definitely been feeling that way. But I think it also was kind of like, man, like, at the time, I was 22. And it's like, these people, <laughs> they, they trust me enough to, to, you know, place place that call to me and say, Hey, can you help us with this? Like, I, th- I think that trust really meant really, really meant a lot to me and, and went a long way of like, okay, like, this is the field that I belong in. This is something that I really, something that I really enjoy. Yeah. It is, it is a little surreal feeling, right? I remember, yeah. how old would I have been? I would have been late 20s when I was working at the Washington, Baltimore, Haida, and I'm mm-hmm. working task force and I'm working with FBI, DEA, ATF, marshals. Like there's all these different factions in this one building and to work with all of those people and get to know all those people. And those, you know, those are all the big agencies that lay people will know and perk up when you let them know what you do kind of thing. Yeah. And so it is a little bit surreal sometimes that he's right in the mix of this whole thing and I'm dealing with all these cases and just helping, helping to solve crime, which is, it was just always a, a good thing and is what an analyst should be doing, right? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and I think it makes the the work just feel so rewarding when it's like, man, like the work that we're doing is helping people get off the streets, especially when you hear about cases that get solved and, and things like that. I mean, there was another one where, and this was again in 2019, we'd had a shooting go out and the victim had basically given us like a street name, kind of a vague description, and had mentioned that they shared a house together. And so I ended up, I'm totally on a whim, just going on clear because I tried everything else and couldn't find anything and just searched the address on clear and ended up finding a guy that matched the age. And when I pulled up his probation photo, sure enough, he had the street name, matched the description. And in this particular one, we went out the next day, ended up arresting that guy at his probation office. He had the gun in the car that he'd used to commit the shooting all within 24 hours of the shooting occurring. And so things like that, it's just really rewarding because it's like, man, like, you know, I'm not just putting numbers on a spreadsheet you know, for a bank or something like that, I'm helping get a guy that shoots people off the street. Yeah. Like, th- like that's a really rewarding feeling. Yeah. So that's always a great feeling working these cases. So when you're in Detroit, what other types of analytical tools are you working with? You, you've mentioned Clear. What else were you working with in Detroit? We were working with Clear. 
ArcGIS. And then we had a lot of, we did a lot of social media type work as well. And then I would also use Excel to get, to just run data and kind of analyze data for the, the precinct that I had. I usually did that on Fridays. We were a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. And then we also used a tool called Payek for a lot of our link analysis, social network analysis that we would do to kind of build out these gangs and kind of see who the, the people of interest were. Okay. So kind and what, of, was so, the, what was the name of that software? Payek. P-A-J-E-K. Now with the social media work that you did, is it the situation where you have a, a pseudonym account that you're working with or how does that work? It was, it was, it was usually that like, okay, we know this guy's street name. Okay. We've got a social media forum. Let's figure out, you know, who the person really is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was also like, I'd be looking for somebody and I would know their name and I would try to find them on social media, which I always found a little bit harder. Cause like, if they're not using a profile with their real name, it's, sure. it's, it's kind of hard to figure out what that street name might be. So usually I'd go through and read through cases and kind of see, okay, they're using this street name. Let me run it using this street name. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know if they have gotten smarter over the years but geez there was a time there where you would get all kinds of information just on facebook <laughs> that, yeah. yeah they have that they you haven't gotten get and so and then i think they realized like oh i can get in trouble if i'm flashing this gun in a picture yeah. on facebook i was like oh i guess i better not do that anymore and so right but and i do find it fascinating because there's so much data with social media that you could spend your whole day just on social media. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to get down those rabbit holes for sure. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So you leave Detroit for Charlotte, go into that decision, because as you mentioned, Detroit's close to your hometown. So you're leaving home again. Yeah. So it really started during the pandemic. So when the pandemic started and we went into like work from home and, and kind of, especially in Michigan, where it was like really, really locked down. And so you really weren't seeing a lot of people. I just found myself, as I was alone with my thoughts, I just found myself ready for a change. And I had had other opportunities to like move or change jobs. But honestly, I just, I wasn't ready to do that at the time. And so as the pandemic started, I was kind of like, you know, I, I, I want something just a little bit different. I moved back in with my parents and, you know, I, I love my parents. I loved living with them. <laughs> I always look forward to seeing them going when I go home. But at the time I was about 23 and I was kind of like, man, I don't, I don't want to be 23 and, and living, you know, with my parents anymore. Like I kind of want to really just get started as an adult and I want kind of a new challenge. And it wasn't really like I targeted Charlotte. Charlotte just kind of opened up at the time. And I was like, okay, like I could see myself moving to Charlotte. Let's let's just, you know, throw our name in the hat and kind of just see what happens. And honestly, I didn't even really think I was going to get the job. But fortunately, I, I did. And it, it ended up working out. And so I ended up moving to Charlotte in August of 2020. So it was really okay. just kind of wanting, yeah, just kind of wanting something new and something a little bit different. Yeah. Now, so for that interview process, then is that a Zoom call or are you meeting face to face in Charlotte during this time? That the interview was a phone call. Mm -hmm. And then I went down there for a polygraph and then kind of just a visit and see like the office environment and just even in general, just spend some time in the city of Charlotte and just see like, okay, like, can I see myself living here? Is this a good fit? Things like that. And then how does Charlotte differ from Detroit? Yeah. So in, in Detroit, we were pretty decentralized. When I worked in that precinct, I was literally working in the precinct office. I was kind of embedded in our particular ceasefire unit for that precinct. And then 
in my second role where I was kind of doing more like informatics and data analytics, then I was at headquarters within our CIU, but that the model there was more decentralized, whereas, whereas in CMPD, we're more centralized. And so I think it's, it's definitely different because it, it brings kind of a unique or a different set of challenges. Like I think sometimes, at least for me, it's a little easier to grow centralized because like one of the nice things about CMPD is we have a ton, you know, a ton of analysts with a variety of background and a variety of experience. And so there are a lot of people who can tell me, you know, hey, like I like this idea, but maybe you would be better suited if you did it this way, you know, who, who maybe have done it the way that I was going to do it and saw that it wasn't useful. And so I think to me, the biggest difference was that kind of the centralization model that we have here, which at first was an adjustment, but it's one that I've come to really enjoy and really see a ton of value and benefit in just being able to get that feedback right, you know, in the office and also being able to just, you know, peep over my cubicle and be like, hey, have you seen, you know, this case? I think it might, you know, be related to this case. And then you're, you're directly working together as opposed to, you know, I don't know if this analyst is out of the office or I don't know if, you know, they've seen that case yet. It's, it's just kind of easier. Yeah. And just for the audience, he is Charlotte Mecklenburg. Charlotte's yeah. one of those weirdo cities that has a hyphenated name (laughs) so but so let's let's stay on that topic then of centralized versus decentralized and i'm not as familiar with both cities so is detroit and charlotte about the same size area wise i don't they're detroit i believe is i believe detroit's bigger area wise yeah 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 And, and i guess where i'm going with that is if you have a large area geographically that can lead to the need to have a more decentralized model. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think of that. Oh, Charlotte's actually, Charlotte's actually bigger. Yeah, Charlotte's actually bigger. I should have known that. And I didn't. That's okay. And, and so it's not a metro either. Both of them are, are city governments, right? It's not a, it's not a metro where it's a city county combo, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Both of them are city governments. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I can, see that and i've also heard of different models there it seemed like a lot of guests that i've had on the show that were analysts in california they have a model in place where you're either in the centralized location for the a unit for a time being or you're shadowing a different analyst for a time being and then you eventually branch out to a particular district where you're going to be assigned. And so you get a little bit of that feel for the way things are from shadowing before you're just let out into your own district. So there's definitely a little bit more of a hybrid model I've seen from that. But also to your point too, and we've talked about this even at my work, is you know we're all working from home now. And so there's not that cubicle conversation going on where you're in a cubicle and you might hear a name or an issue of, of a coworker in, in the cubicle next door and you can't really chime in because we're not, we're not hearing those random conversations anymore, right? We're all working from yeah. home. So you kind of miss out on that opportunity for someone to overhear maybe an issue that you're having and can chirp in. Yeah, for sure. And we're, and we're hybrid in Charlotte. So we, all of us work three days a week in office. And then we all have Wednesday is our all in office day where everybody's in office. That's kind of also when we, as crime analysis division, have our meetings and things like that. Yeah. Hmm. I, I also find it fascinating that you moved right in the middle of the pandemic. And so I being from Florida and I'm, I have family in Pennsylvania, so I'm certainly aware with 
how different Florida is from Pennsylvania. Did you find that there was a huge difference between Detroit and Charlotte in terms of the pandemic? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I The lot because we were the first holiday season that I was in Charlotte, we were kind of in a lockdown, but it was a lot different. Like, whereas Michigan was kind of more of a, you know, total lockdown type situation. Charlotte was more of a kind of, they, it was more of like a targeted lockdown. So it was like, we're going to, bars are going to close a little early and there's going to be a curfew after like, I think it was 10 o'clock or midnight. And so it was a little bit more loose, I would say, than, than Michigan was. Huh. That's, that's one of the most fascinating aspects to me of, of the pandemic yeah. is how different states just had totally different roles. I mean, the difference even between Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan had vastly different roles. <laughs> and like, it's, it's so funny. It's so funny you say that because when I, when I was driving, so my parents helped me move and we drove to Charlotte from Michigan. We were going through Ohio. We were, we were going to try to stop and get lunch and like go to the bathroom. And at the time in Ohio, all of the restrooms were closed because of COVID. And so we were like trying to just find like a place where we could use the bathroom and, and get lunch. And it was just such an ordeal. And it was just, it was kind of to your point. It's like, man, like everything is so different. Like we have no idea what's open. We have no idea what's not, you know, it was, it just, it even made that drive down like a lot, a lot tougher. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now in, in Charlotte there. What are what are some things that you're working on? What are some projects you're, you're doing? Yeah. So currently I'm assigned to two patrol divisions and then I'm also over the burglary crime type. And so within the lens of burglary, it's a lot of trying to kind of identify series, working with the division analysts to kind of figure out, okay, what series am I going to take? Is there more citywide and what series are they going to take? Because it's maybe more concentrated to their division or the couple of divisions that they have. One of the goals that I have within that assignment is trying to really just assist the division analysts in being able to help with like the burglary series that are in their jurisdiction. You know what I'm saying? That way, if they get a request, they, they, they already have a little bit of information that they can use to jump on that request or kind of already know from me, you know, what's, what's going on, just because I can't with all these times that I have, I can't necessarily touch everything. And then I, I also like part of my responsibility is learning when to delegate and when not to. So one of the goals that I've had there is just making it easier to, to, to do that, to, to, to show an analyst, hey, you know, you, you're going to have, you, you've kind of got this, this going on at this strip mall, or you've got a couple of different burglaries in your jurisdiction that have been targeting this particular restaurant or, or type of restaurant. So that's been kind of one goal from the burglary lens. And then from the division lens, it's a lot more looking into kind of the crime, just just the different crime that goes on. If, if something's up, kind of where where I can look to or, or where I can point the division command staff to kind of help them better understand how to address that crime. So a lot of times I'll look at repeat locations or I'll look at an area maybe that's been trending that's had a higher concentration in the summer and has also had a higher concentration this year. And kind of some of the projects I'll do there is putting out patrol bulletins to address those particular crime types strategically. And then also tactically to kind of help look into Niven leads and look into shootings and kind of things like that to kind of be that expert for the division. It's, it's very much kind of a self-initiated, 
you're the analyst and you're kind of just jumping on the different things that are important to that division or to that crime type or to your assignment. Another thing that we do in CMPD that I'm responsible for as a burglary analyst is we put out a product twice a week called the Active Crime Series Brief. And it's basically a kind of a synopsis for all of our different crime types of things that are potentially relevant for the entire department. So as a burglary analyst, it's my job to the night before to send the person who's in charge of compiling that what I think needs to be on there for burglary. And so that's kind of one of the other things that I'll do is put together any timelines or any maps that I have to kind of send to them for it, for that so that the whole department is informed of different burglary trends or, di- or different things that people need to be aware of. Hmm, interesting. So how many analysts do you have there at Charlotte Mecklenburg? We have a couple of openings right now, but we have around, we have around 10. Okay. Yeah. It's all civilian, a mixture of civilian as well? We are, we're, we're all civilian right now. All civilian. And I noticed the title of your position, data analytics specialist, which, I mean, it's always fascinating to me with this field, how many different ways we could title the same job. <laughs> and, and, and it's always interesting too, for me, I think, even just beyond necessarily the title, just how many different ways or roles there is in the job. Like, I think that's always one thing that's so cool to me is how you can be doing the same like quote unquote job in one place, but it's very much a different role and a different set of expectations than you would somewhere else. So I always think that's like kind of fascinating to me how like, for lack of a better term, how much of a big tent field crime analysis can be. Now, do you actually have a title of crime analyst at the police department? Our official title is data analytics specialist, but we are like within the department, we are the crime analysis. Yeah. So there's not, it's not like it's mixed up where you have some people called analysts, crime analysts or Intel analysts, and you're called data analytics specialist. Yeah. That reminds me almost of like a federal title. I think they used to call their intelligence analyst specialist. Used mm, to be yeah. an intelligence specialist. I don't know if they still do that or not. I just know they used to. So, so let's move on then. I do want to talk a little bit of about your perspective, given the fact that you targeted this profession as a freshman and then became an analyst, I want to talk a little bit to you about and get your advice for those that maybe be in undergrad right now and are in a similar boat where they've decided to target becoming an analyst and what advice you would have for them. I think the biggest thing that I can say, and I'll definitely speak more in depth on this, is be bold and go for it. I think one of the things that has really threaded throughout my entire career to this point is just kind of that posture of, you know what, not sure that I'm qualified for this, but I'm going to go for it. You know, why why not me? You know what I'm saying? I mean, even applying to Charlotte, it was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not sure that I'm that I'm qualified for this, but you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to throw my name in the hat and, you know, in, at the university asking questions, going up to professors and saying, Hey, I I want to be a crime analyst, but I I don't know how can you help? I think my biggest advice would be to ask those questions. Like that's what those professors are there to do. They're there to guide you. They're there to support you and, and help you kind of figure out what it is that you want in your career. And a lot of times they're going to have the answers or they're going to know somebody who is going to have the answer. And so I think that would be my biggest encouragement is go for it in asking your professors for advice. But then also, if you're aware of opportunities that 
are out there for crime analysis in your area, go for those as well. I mean, you mentioned the Cincinnati internship that I had. That literally came about because I talked to a professor who had been working with CPD and, and she mentioned that they potentially were looking for an intern or that she knew how to get me connected to the person who was overseeing the unit. And so I just reached out and said, hey, I just graduated. I want to know more about crime analysis. I, I want to become a crime analyst. Would I be able to spend the summer and you know a little bit longer potentially working as an intern for you like it was it was pretty much just an email and it ended up working out and so i would say if you're if you're interested in crime analysis ask your professors are there things that i can do to become better at either the tools that i need for crime analysis or are there opportunities that we have for crime analysis internships do you know if our local PD has a crime analyst that I could intern or that I could shadow and, and just find out. One thing I learned in college is that most people who are professors, right, they're professors because they're, they're passionate about what they're doing. And so they like people who are passionate about it as well. They're not going to be like, well, I don't really care to talk to somebody else. They're, they're going to try and help. That's what they want to do. And so I would just encourage you to, to, to be bold and ask questions and, and ask your professors for help and ask them for opportunities. Is there, is there tools that you would recommend that an undergrad learn now if they're looking to get into the analyst field? I would, I would recommend getting proficient in ArcGIS. If, you're, if your university doesn't have GIS courses in your CJ curriculum, Maybe try to take some of the intro ones in the geography department if they have those. If not, three has a lot of different free resources that they that they offer different kind of classes and certificates that can help you kind of get used to like the crime analysis solution or the crime analysis tools or even just ArcGIS in general. I think that's one that would go a long way. I think getting familiar with, you know, working with data, cleaning data, manipulating data in Excel would be crucial. And then I think getting familiar with Python and, and SQL. One thing I definitely wish I would have done more of an undergrad was kind of programming and, and growing that proficiency in, in programming. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with being well-read, right? If sometimes it's difficult, you're in undergrad and you're trying to identify what to learn what will be a good return on investment. And you hear this podcast and you hear something about learning scripts or SQL, and it can be difficult to envision, is that the right path for you? So let's talk about that a little bit. Why should somebody learn scripting or, or SQL? In terms of scripting, I think it being able to automate things is, is such a useful tool. And it just, it makes your job so much easier because instead of having to, you know, constantly be doing the same manual task over and over again, it gives you that opportunity to script it, automate it, get, get the actual product done. So you can start asking those questions or kind of allowing the data to inform your next steps. I think that crime analysis is so much more than just, oh, cool, I made this map. Oh, cool, I made this social network analysis. It's, okay, I made this map and I know that this area has a high density of LFAs by these hotels. Why? And it's kind of diving in and answering those follow-up questions. So I think automation is so important because once you start identifying those tasks that you're doing again and again and again, and you automate them, it allows you to maybe do different types of analysis for your department or to go deeper within those tasks that you've, that you've been given and that you keep being given. So I think that's where that kind of scripting, that automation comes in. 
And then I think as far as SQL goes, I would say just because you can use it in so many places, you can use it within ArcGIS. I know some departments, like we, we query in, in, in SQL at CMPD, so it, it can help you find jobs in the crime analysis field. And I think even too, if you learn something like SQL, it makes it easier for you to learn something like Tableau or to learn Excel formulas. They're not necessarily like you learn one and then you learn them all because they're all the same, but I've definitely found that some of the logic is very similar. And so I think if I would have had that background for SQL coming out of undergrad, it would have made it maybe a little bit easier for me when I used Tableau a little bit in Detroit to kind of better understand it because I was familiar with writing in SQL and what that looked like. Yeah, and I, I do highly recommend learning script, learning SQL, learning programming, because even if you are decide that you want to be an officer or an agent or not be an analyst at all, trying to get a better understanding of the data will help you in every facet of whatever job you get in the future. Right. And so I do want to come back to the idea of SQL and Tableau. Before I do that, just a plug for our listeners. We do have a hiring guide that we published a couple of years back. It's Sean Bear's Guide to Hiring a Law Enforcement Analyst. And it's a, a seven-part series in which we go over various aspects of folks wanting to get into the profession and folks that want to hire people for the profession. So I will put a link to that series in the show notes for this episode if you want more information. All right, TJ, before we leave this subject, what do you think the law enforcement profession can do to better promote the profession to undergrads? Oh, that's a great question. I think, I don't know how much this maybe is necessarily on the law enforcement profession or crime analysts in general, but I think having analysts maybe involved in universities and giving your analysts those opportunities to teach some of those classes or work as, you know, adjunct professors, because that was something that was, I mean, I mean, that was game changing for me was having a professor that was a crime analyst and could speak to crime analysis. I, I had no clue what crime analysis was before that. And so I think having people that have worked in this field and are able to speak to, okay, what does the field look like? What are some things that you know, I can teach that I wish that I would have learned in undergrad and, and just making people aware that this is a field that exists. I think that would be one way kind of making those inroads in universities would be so, so crucial. Yeah, I know a lot of analysts that work in universities and, and now we have whole majors and classes dedicated to law enforcement analysis and online programs. And Yet we have these association conferences, whether it's IACA or IALEA, and they're nowhere to be found. There's not anybody's there from any of these universities or representing these mm. universities. And so there's definitely a disconnect between the universities and analysts. And, and I know IACA used to have a colleges and universities committee that just recently got defunct for lack of a better word. So actually one of the things that I'm planning on doing, I'm hoping to get it off the ground for the IACA conference, which is at the end of August in Chicago, is I am working with the University of Illinois at Chicago to host an event there the week that IACA is there. And I'm hoping to get four or five analysts to join me to go to UIC for an event to give a TED Talk style 10-minute 
presentation and to bring analysis to that university. And mm. so this is the first of its kind that we're doing. So I'm still in the development stage of it, but hoping that will take off in August. And hopefully this is something that we do every and it will be in Las Vegas next year for the IACA. And all these cities have universities. It would be beneficial for both the students and for the profession to bring analysts to the university. Yes. And I, and I think, I think that's huge. And I also think one thing that you touched on earlier, kind of of more certificates or more programs kind of focusing on crime analysis. I think that's also huge because I know one benefit of that for me was that when I graduated, I felt like interview wise, I was kind of able to talk the talk and walk the walk, so to speak. I had not just the knowledge of, okay, here are the tools that I need to use and I know how to use them, at least in an, in an entry level way, but I also had kind of that ability to know, okay, what is it that I'm trying to do with these tools? What What kind of questions am I trying to you know, answer with these tools and how can I use these tools to better answer those questions? I think that's one value of universities continuing to, to grow and adding those kind of certificates for crime analysis. Because even that helped me get more clarity was he has a crime analysis and prevention certificate. And I went through that, like I said, my senior year, and that just helped me get so much clarity on, okay, what tools do I need to use to be a crime analyst? Because again, it was, it was all uncharted territory for me. When I decided that I wanted to do it, there wasn't anybody who was kind of like, okay, like this is what you need to do. So having those conversations with Charlie and then going through the certificate was like, okay, like now I understand what I need to do. And then I really do like the idea of, of a, of a Ted talk style event and kind of giving people, you know, curious undergrads and even just other people who maybe are make, want to make a career switch, just a platform to ask questions to people who are in the field and have a variety of experience, whether they've been doing it for you know, 10 to 15 years or whether they're pretty fresh out of undergrad and they're, they're, they're still new in their career and they're, you know, what do they like about the field? What do they enjoy about it? What are some challenges they've, they've entered? I think that that would be so valuable too. And, and just raising that awareness that, hey, this is a field that is, is worth pursuing, A, and that B, you, you can pursue. All right. I do want to swing back with the sequel question then, because you answered the question about why an undergrad student might want to learn SQL, but I want to take that on a little bit farther and why you think analysts, somebody that's already an analyst in the field, should learn SQL. I think mainly I would say because you never can, I mean, A, generally because you never can stop, you never can stop learning and it's always good to have those tools kind of in your toolkit, just because it, it's always good to know more and, and be able to figure out how to do your job a little bit better. And then I think B, just because so many different tools that you might use on the job, kind of like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, ArcGIS access might be optimized by, you know, your ability to use SQL. And so I would say it's it's worth taking the effort to learn it because it can make your job easier in in the long run. Yeah. I mean, I, I mostly tell people when you learn SQL, especially with a records management system, you can get access to all the data. Mm, yeah. And there, certainly there may be restrictions at your police department of what they'll give you access to. But if you're relying on GUIs or reports or data dumps for your data, I guarantee you you're missing a piece of the pie in terms of data. There's just no way an interface or a report is going to give an analyst everything that they need to do his or her job. So I highly recommend SQL. I highly recommend getting behind the curtain, so to speak, 
and really understanding how the data from a records management system, from a CAD, all sources works and behaves and have a general understanding of all the data back there because you never know when you're going to need it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's a good segue into Tableau. I saw Tableau on your resume. And for those that may not be familiar with Tableau, Tableau is a dashboard software and it is very user-friendly in that you can literally plug in a SQL statement and then be quickly building dynamic charts and tables and parameters and drop-down menus and building your dashboard really, really quickly. I really like the plug-and-play aspect to the application, and but with that, there's always something that frustrates me about those plug-and-play because there's always something that I want to do that because they want to make this drag-and-drop, you can't do it as easily as I think you should, but I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about Tableau, how you used it, how you would recommend it for analysts. Yeah. So I used it in kind of my second role in DPD. So after about a year in DPD, I got promoted and I got moved to kind of a new informatics team, which focused much more on data analytics. And we use Tableau there for most of the department's statistical reporting. And then also we would create dashboards for just kind of general requests that people had within the department for like different projects or different initiatives that the department had. And when I first started learning Tableau, admittedly, it was was very love-hate for me. Uh, I struggled a lot with it at first, kind of, again, because I didn't have that programming background from my undergrad. It was kind of tough to figure out the logic of kind of writing things and what it looked like. So that was definitely an adjustment for me. And to kind of go a little bit back to the SQL conversation, had I maybe known how to write SQL, I think it would have been much easier because I think I would have better understood, okay, this this is the logic this is looking for. This is just like this statement in SQL. You know, okay, cool. Pretty easy to pick up. I really enjoyed the visualizations in Tableau. I, I thought the visualizations, kind of like what you were mentioning, were were pretty robust, especially in terms of being able to use parameters to really dig deep and being able to kind of focus on specific variables. So I really thought that Tableau was intuitive for creating really, really good visualizations. And I think that's one of the things that I missed the most about it was just being able to create those visualizations and kind of set up your page and and just see what you could do with Tableau. I think as I started understanding it better, learning that you could float legends, things like that, it just, I really enjoyed the visualizations that that you can create with it. Another thing I just thought about is to drill down, being able to drill down into summarized data to be able to identify what is involved that makes up that summarized data. As I think about that and say that out loud, it's it's both a blessing and a curse because it, it yeah. seems like you always get to the point where someone's like, okay, well, how do I get to the point where I'm downloading it into Excel? <laughs> and I'm like... I like the whole point of the program is to have a dashboard that you can have summarized data there, drill down a little bit, have a general understanding of what the data is telling you, and then make decisions from there. And it seems like it always ends up with, okay, either they're not drilling down at all, they're just taking the summarized value at face value, or they're wanting all the way down to, okay, how do I download the whole thing into Excel? So I can do it all the manipulation myself. And it just seems like it's one extreme to the other. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that for sure. Okay. 
Well, let's move on to personal interests then before we get to the don't be that analyst call-in segment. And when we talked in the prep call, just a huge smile on my face when you mentioned that you're a fan of professional wrestling. And I grew up watching wrestling, and it's, but I haven't watched it now for, oh, geez, 15 years plus probably since the last time I really watched it or kept up with it. It's fascinating to me to see that it's still going on because I just thought that maybe it was going to be something that my generation only really enjoyed and that it wouldn't get passed on to the next generation. But you are certainly proof that uh, professional wrestling is being passed on to the next generation. Yeah, and of course, I'm going to add the disclaimer that... I know it's fake or scripted, I should say. <laughs> you know, I thought about coming on here pretending like I thought that it was real. Oh, it's still real to me. What do you mean? That, that's always the first question that people ask. Well, after they look at me like I have four heads when I say that or laugh, they always are like, you know, it's not real, right? I'm like, yes, I do. And so, yeah, I've watched it since I was in fourth grade and it was just a hobby that I always had. I have a ton of friends that made through watching it. And yeah, it's just something that I, I really enjoy. And yeah, it's definitely, it's still going strong for sure. Especially whenever people are like, oh, I'm familiar with wrestling or I'm a wrestling fan. It's like, oh, we both have this hobby. I'm not the only one. <laughs> great. Yeah. The whole idea of, of whether it's real or fake, it, it was a change in the way the wrestlers act. And what I mean by that is back in the, the 60s and 70s, they would have the wrestling matches and then they would sign autographs. Well, the wrestler would be like an actor. So when he signed mm. autographs, he or she signed autographs, they would be the person themselves and would not be in character at all, right? So you might yeah. have your character in the ring, but then when you were dealing with him or her after the event, they were the actual person. So the character and the person were two different personalities. It wasn't until the 80s that you stayed in character. And then this whole idea of it just being wrestling 24-7. And then, you know, putting on this show and challenging this idea that we this isn't fake right it was a total different way of how professional wrestling was marketed and, and behaved yeah and it's always cool even to see too how like it how it's ebbed and flowed you know even since then and how kind of like the standards for like performers have kind of changed like you know in the 80s it was always like everybody looked like action figures you mm -hmm. know what i mean like they all had like these gigantic muscles whereas you still have that and you still have that kind of market but like now you also get a lot more of the athleticism and the the high flying, the more technical kind of thing like that. So I feel like there's a little bit of something for everyone kind of yeah. aspect to it. Like you can find so, so many different types of wrestlers and so much wrestling that you enjoy. So I always enjoy that aspect too. Yeah. So who's your favorite wrestler of all time? Oh, that's a hard one. I think my favorite wrestler of all time, I would say has to be Edge. Because oh, uh, okay. when I was a kid, I couldn't watch Monday Night Raw because I had to go to bed at 10 <laughs> and it was on until 11. And so I could always watch Friday Night Smackdown because it was 8 to 10. And my parents yeah. would let me stay up later on Fridays. Yeah. And Edge, at the time, Edge was on SmackDown. And he had this, like, faction with him that would always be beating up, like, Batista back when he was a wrestler or, like, The Undertaker. And, like, at the time, like, you know, 10-year-old me who thought it was real would be, like, almost in tears. Like, <laughs> Batista, he just beat you up last week. Why aren't you helping him? What are you doing? Yeah. What's going on? And so I think I just, he always just made me feel like a certain way. Like he just, he played that bad guy, you know, so well, like I detested him as a kid. And so I think he's always just been one of my favorites. 
That's interesting. So you just named several wrestlers that I actually know because, you know, I was watching it probably when you, when you were 10 years old. <laughs> so nice. I don't know anybody from today, really, most likely. So who are some of your favorites from today? Some of my favorites from today, there's a new company out called All Elite Wrestling, which is kind of what I primarily watch. And my favorites from that company are Adam Cole. He's kind of a, a fairly younger guy. And then I'm really a fan of John Moxley. He was in the WWE and then he left, went to AEW and he, he's actually from Cincinnati. So I think that's part of why I like him. And then he just, he just cuts like really, really good promos. Like when I was a kid, I would watch (laughs) the promos and I was like, Ugh, like just get to the action. I'm so bored. Whereas now I really appreciate the promos when you can cut a good one. And you've just got good story when you can kind of tell that story. Another one that I like is this guy, Eddie Kingston. I mean, same thing. There's a saying that, you know, so-and-so could have a match with a broomstick and make it look good. Well, Eddie Kingston, you know, I saw this on social media and I'm going to, I'm going to borrow it. Eddie Kingston could, could cut a promo that makes you think that him and that broomstick have been enemies since the eighties and they've hated each other since the eighties. Like he, he just can make you, think that he just despises and loathes the other guy and he's just i mean no there might not be anybody who can cut promos like him right now so he's one of my friends will very strongly disagree with me with that but (laughs) i personally am a mark for anything yeah well just hey you own it it's your opinion you own it right exactly yeah wrestling is one of those things that i just don't really think there's anything like it and right It's year round, it's every week, and you can follow that story every day of the week throughout the year. And then you can also get a chance to see them live when they come to town. Mm -hmm. And there's not too many other types of entertainment that fit into that category. Yeah. Right? Everything has a season. Everything has just a, a limited time of when they're on. And there's certainly, not, you might not ever get a chance to see them live. And, right. But with professional wrestling, it's a total different animal. Exactly. And, and, that, and that's kind of one of the cool things about it too. And I think even with the aspect of it being scripted, it's like when, when your favorite wrestler loses sometimes, it's part of a larger story. So if they lose, but they still have a good performance, you know, it can kind of enhance it sometimes because it's like, man, like that he just went a long way for that match because he showed that he can do this really well and that the crowd is really into him. So I think it kind of adds that element of like, man, like they're telling a good story with this guy or this guy's getting, you know, more traction under him because he wrestled so well. And that's having been a fan for a pretty long time. That's also one of the cool things to see is when you're watching a guy and you're watching him like earn that favor or her, you know, earn that favor with the fans and you're seeing the fans opinion kind of change on them. And I, I yeah. think that's just so cool as well. Yeah. And you know, one thing I do enjoy every once in a while on YouTube, it's the behind the scenes of decisions that were made and what didn't work and worked and what they were going to do and who really hated mm-hmm. each other. And those, yeah. those get really fascinating to me when I think back, I was like, Oh, okay. When I was a kid, I was watching these two and they really didn't like each other or they did really like each other. Right. Or yeah. the one time that this crazy thing happened and there's a whole podcast channel dedicated to this. There's a whole YouTube channel dedicated to some of the old stories. So every once in a while, I will check those out. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, all right. Well, very good. So let's move on then to don't be that analyst. So the way this works, you, we got some callers on the line and we are going to ask them what your don't be that analyst 
is. And so for those that may be new to the show, this is something that you've seen an analyst do that he or she probably shouldn't really be doing. And so my don't be that analyst for this time is don't be that analyst that doesn't subscribe to my podcast. How about that? Please subscribe either to our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. TJ, you got to don't be that analyst for us. I would say don't be that analyst that gets up and leaves in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> like just like, it's like, all right, my day's done when like they're in the middle of a meeting. I work from home, so I guess technically I can do that without it being a big deal because <laughs> no people don't realize that I left. But yeah, yeah, there's definitely a way to leave a meeting early and to enter a meeting late. So make sure that you read the room on that one. That's a good, good tip there, TJ. So first on the line, we have Alex. Alex, what is your don't be that analyst? I have to say, don't be that analyst that doesn't vet their work, but still CCs a million different people on their email. I had an analyst from another jurisdiction reach out to me once saying that a suspect in his jurisdiction had an involvement and a connection to my jurisdiction. He CC'd all of his bosses, all of my bosses. And then after double and triple checking to ensure that this guy had no real connection to our jurisdiction, I had the unfortunate pleasure of clicking reply all and telling him that he was incorrect and he did not have the right guy. <laughs> so make sure that what you're sending out is correct before you send it out and don't CC people who don't need to be CC'd on emails. I think that's fascinating and from various standpoints. Obviously, you always have to be careful how you write in an email. People can't get your tone and may misread your attitude towards what you're saying. And another thing is, is like, sometimes I don't like to CC a bunch of people, even though my boss has always asked me to CC them on everything, just because I'm trying to work this thing out. And I don't necessarily need 10 eyes on this thing that I'm trying to work out. So let me work it out with this one person and then send out a summary, including all 10 people later. What do you think about that? I, I agree. I think some people have different like interpretations of what a CC, like what it means to have somebody CC. Like I think sometimes if you CC someone's boss, it's really easy for them to think that you're, you know, attacking them or, or you're going after them. When I think in reality, you're just trying to make sure that their boss is in the loop and your boss is in the loop, things like that. So I, I definitely agree with you there. And it even kind of makes me think too of like replying all in a conversation when you're just trying to have a conversation with one person and you're like going back and forth for like everyone to see. And you're like, oh. you know, you can just hit reply right Not <laughs> yeah that's true and sometimes i'll what i do sometimes is like okay well i'll just instant message him or i'll call them up on the phone and then i yeah. don't have to worry about my boss coming back to me and said hey why didn't you <laughs> reply all i was like well i talked to him on the phone or i talked to them via im i didn't necessarily send out an email just yet but certainly ways around that all right. Next caller is Rachel. Rachel, what is your don't be that analyst? Don't be that analyst that makes your products kitschy and puts jokes and cartoons and creates a newsletter and uses crazy colors to get folks' attention. Be the analyst that's serious, that has a good, solid product. If your products are good and the agency values what you do, you don't have to make it fancy and crazy because they will use it. Yeah, what do you think about that, TJ? I 100% agree. I've, I've seen like 
yeah like if you if you start having like clip art or you're using like 3d charts and it's and, and it's just like what what like w- what is going on right now like yeah it def- definitely just kind of keep it keep it simple keep things that you know keep it to things that you know that people will understand like I, I totally agree with that like make it just keep it usable yeah i think it's it's difficult right because the reason folks are most likely putting that stuff in there is that they want to capture the attention of the user. Yeah. So if you send something out, an email, there's thousands of emails sent to users every day, right? And so how do you make your product stand out from the rest so you lure them in to read more about it? And so there definitely is a fine line between putting in, making your product stand out versus going too far with you know what she say chintzy bells and whistles so there is an art to that and there's no steadfast rules that's why some people get caught doing it when they shouldn't be doing it so it's Mm. definitely something you need to know your audience and be able to read the room yeah all right next on the line is nick nick's what's your don't be that analyst don't be that analyst that explains to your chief and commanders how easy pivot tables really are. It's better that they think we're just that smart and just that fast. <laughs> that, that is funny. I, I do find that, and I, I am involved in this as well when I say this, analysts sometimes explain too much, right? They get down in the weeds. They talk about how something was done or maybe too much detail in what the room really wants. And so I, that's what I think about when, when he said that. It's like, yeah, every once in a while, I think we're proud of the fact that we can do this. <laughs> and yeah. that maybe the rest of the room doesn't. So we, we over-explain, sell it a little bit, maybe too much. Yeah, and it, for some reason, it made me think of that scene in The Wizard of Oz when they find out that it's not really a wizard. And he's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> like th- that, that's, for some reason, it made me think of that. And I think even too, sometimes you end up with the inverse where people think like they'll ask you to make a change on a dashboard because they think you know oh it's it's just one line you're just going to click that delete that and add a new number but like it's like well wait a minute it's actually we've got to do change a bunch of formulas now to make that happen and so I think it's one of the challenges sometimes is threading that needle of like okay how do I not over explain and you know lose people but also how do I help people understand that what we're doing is not as simple as oh yeah I'm just going to change that number in 10 seconds and send that back it's definitely a a, a hard kind of needle to thread uh, agreed all right next caller next on the line is jenny jenny what's your don't be that analyst i would say don't be the analyst who doesn't give credit where credit's due if you have somebody who is helping to provide you with a piece of information make sure you credit them and always source your information yeah i i think that's something that we don't do enough in analysis And certainly when you talk about your time in undergrad and college, you always cited your work and always had the bibliography and where you got that information. And I I think once you get to the law enforcement analysis profession, there's a lot of times where you don't document your sources and you don't talk about your data definition either, like what's excluded from this product. Mm -hmm. So there's a full understanding. So there's definitely 
metadata, data behind data that I think is lacking in a lot of analytical products. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think citing citing that work, if it's data or if it's like, oh, I got this information from so-and-so, it's so important because it also allows them to be a part of like any follow-up conversation. It might be great for you if you get the credit for that. But then when people start asking questions about, well, wait a minute, where do we get this information? You know, if, if, if you can't speak to it because maybe it's not your information or 100% your information, th then you've kind of got a problem. And I think it kind of makes me think of just like, one of my core values on the job is that my goal in this profession is not for TJ Sweet to look really good. My goal is to do work where the winner, so to speak, in anything that I do is the citizens who aren't victimized because we prevent crime. And I think sometimes it's really easy to fall into that mentality of, well, you know, if I work with this person or if I cite this source, then this person might, you know, look good and not me. Whereas for me, it's like, hey, I'm going to share this information because if this other person gets credit for it, that's fine because someone's not going to get victimized. And, yeah. and that's the real win. Yeah. And I'm sure Jenny's talking from experience there to where mm -hmm. she thought she should have been referenced for helping out with a particular bit of information. And it wasn't mentioned at all that she helped with that information. So just uh, put yourself in those shoes as you're moving forward. All right. Well, our last caller is Kelly. Kelly, what's your don't be that analyst? Don't be that analyst that shuts down when they get something wrong the first time. Be a part of the solution. Ask more questions. You can get it right. Just don't, don't shut down. What do you think about that, TJ? 100% absolutely yes. Especially as a young analyst, there, there have been so many times where I've gotten things wrong where, you know, I've gotten that feedback of, hey, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't do it that way next time. Or maybe this is somebody else's kind of lane and you should let them handle it. Like, and I, and I think being able to take that kind of critique and, and yeah, remembering that this isn't this person saying, oh, you did a terrible thing and you're a terrible analyst, but recognizing, okay, like now that I know that I can be better prepared in the future or I can better know what's my lane and I can ask those questions of like hey this was this was why I was thinking of th this was my thought process and doing it this way how should I reorient that in the future like sometimes when I get critiqued on my work that's one thing I'll do is I'll I'll just respond by saying hey thank you for the feedback this this is what I was thinking how should I kind of maybe reorient myself in the future and seeing it less as some declarative statement about my value as an employee or my or my work value and more as an opportunity to kind of re-engage and reorient myself. And I found that in looking at it that way and seeing these things as learning experiences, it's made me a better analyst because I know where do I need to delegate something versus where can I kind of be the one that takes, you know, the jurisdiction or takes point. Yeah, I think this is where I hear uh, older folks give millennials a hard time about accepting criticism. I feel that nobody likes to take criticism. I feel also that very few of us handle criticism well in our teens and 20s. <laughs> so it's not as if every generation handled criticism perfectly. Yeah. And so you can always be too hard on yourself, right? And, yeah. and I think that's where it's just like what we were talking about before, where if you let it impede your progress, that's when yeah. it becomes a problem. Like you can use that to motivate you, to fuel you like, hey, I got this wrong last time. I need to nail it this time, right? This, this is important. And yeah. I'm going to do all the things that I need to do to get it right versus be so far down on yourself that you don't do your due diligence and become more of a, just a negative body for lack of better terms there. So that's, that's where I think it's important how you react 
to criticism is is the most important. Absolutely, and I think that's one one thing I've learned is that people, because so, sometimes I'd always get worried, man, these people must think I'm a terrible employee because they, you know, I've gotten criticism or things like that. But I think it really is your attitude, kind of like what you just said, your attitude moving forward. And and what what do you bring, you know, as a person to the office? Do you do you bring a good attitude, you know? Because I'd rather be somebody who's known for maybe being a little bit rough around the edges and still having room to grow, but also bringing positivity to the office while versus someone who's known as having, you know, all the confidence in the world, but people walk on eggshells around. Like for me, what how I kind of embody that in my working environment is I, I don't always get this right every day, but I try to come in and just any coworker that's there before I am in the morning, I just try to greet them by name. Or if I see them come in, I'll just say, oh, good morning, so-and-so. Just because for me, like just having that that kind of aura of approachability and just trying to bring a little bit of positivity into the workspace is so important to me. Because I don't, I don't want to be that coworker that it's like, oh man, you know, TJ's in a bad mood today. We, we all, we're all going to walk on eggshells all day because he's not happy. It's like, I want to be that person that it's like, oh, like, you know, TJ's here. Like it makes the day a little bit better. Like, I, I think that that just attitude, even though it's not necessarily necessarily, even though it's not necessarily about taking criticism, I think just your attitude is, is so important. All right. Excellent. So that is Don't Be That Analyst. If you want to be a caller on Don't Be That Analyst, email me at Podcasts at gmail.com all right tj last segment of the show is words to the world this is where i give the guests the last word you can promote any idea that you wish what are your words to the world i think my words to the world are that honestly that that life is a process i mean you're always moving forward and i kind of like what you've said a little bit in the podcast just see your setbacks and your struggles as opportunities to grow and and to get things right and to become a better person and build your character. You you always can make it through a hard season. You know, tough times don't last, but tough people do. And sometimes we just need those seasons in our lives to make us tougher. So yeah, life's a process. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I for do sure. appreciate you being on the show, TJ. Thank you so much and you be safe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.